0: This will be our last Wednesday until January 19th. Uh, We'll be finishing out Genesis 41 tonight and picking up in 42 on January 19th, 2011. So the holidays are upon us. So let's pray and uh, ask for God's guidance tonight. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that, again, we get to open it and we can speak freely and we don't have to whisper. I'm thankful for the way that uh, your word and the work of your spirit Uh, accomplish things that we could not accomplish on our own. I'm thankful that the scriptures are breathed out by you and profitable and uh, that they equip us for the good work you call us to. I'm thankful that you make clear to us that the good work is there for the purpose of putting your glory on display. Lord, uh, in a time of year where we're very distracted by a number of uh, fairly trivial things, uh, I pray that you would help us to be kingdom-oriented and kingdom-minded and, uh, and ever mindful of uh, our created purpose, that we're not just here to accumulate stuff, but we're here to put your glory on display in everything you would have us do. I pray specifically tonight for those who are in uh, maybe a harder, less desirable season of life that are um, consumed with cares that maybe it won't ever turn around. Uh, I pray that you would use this study uh to, to comfort us rightly biblically, not just by escaping uh into some uh some you know fairy tale thing but but rightly equipping us according to your design and your plan. I pray that you would use uh use this time tonight for that uh, lord we're we 're very needy people uh we 're very uh dependent on you. Uh, for all good things and so we uh, submit to you tonight we humble ourselves before you and we ask for your guidance and for your warning for your instruction we pray these things in Jesus name amen like I said we're in Genesis 41 Uh, one theme that we have previously considered is that of God's providence where you see a lot of things happen and if you didn't know who Jesus was all these things that are happening you might say well that's a lot of coincidence uh, but it's not coincidence. We see God's hand of providence very specifically working in many different ways to achieve exactly what God wants to achieve. Clay, did you get your coffee? Is it good? That's good. I went out there. I said, okay, we're starting. He's like, I'm going to get some coffee. I'll be one minute. So I just want to make sure your coffee's good, and it's recorded and online. All right. Um, the uh, What we found in Genesis is that These situations and these circumstances do not define Joseph's fate. You may look at Joseph and think, man, his brothers hate him. Uh, At least they didn't kill him, but they sold him off as a slave, and uh, he was in a pit, and they told his dad he was dead, and here he's a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison, and things didn't go well in Potiphar's house, and you could just look at it and think, man, this guy's just got one serious run of bad luck. But there's a greater reality there that his fate is not just defined by these circumstances, but in fact, God's hand of providence is guiding him specifically according to a plan. It's not just kind of a whichever way the wind blows, we'll see what happens. God's not lackadaisical. God's not lazy. God's not disconnected and aloof and distant. God is specifically involved in the lives of his children. And even the lives of those who are godless, as we see in this chapter in the dreams that he gives. So God's very much at work. Joseph's really the only known Christian, the only known God-fearer in all of Egypt, uh, as far as we know. And we find that personal integrity really matters, because if he had no personal integrity, he would probably just adopt the ways of the land and go about acting like an Egyptian, even though he's a Hebrew. We're thankful he didn't do that by the work of God. So at this point in the story, it's been two years since Joseph interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. Remember those guys? Uh, He interpreted their dreams when they were in the prison together, and it turned out very different for the two of them. The cupbearer's head was lifted up, and the baker's head was lifted off, which is bad for the baker. And last week, we ended the chapter with the Egyptians standing around looking like a bunch of goobers who needed a Hebrew slave to get the job done. At the the end of last week, we we ended with uh, Genesis 41, verse 8, which said, So in the morning, his spirit, his being Pharaoh, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So we ended last week with all these Egyptians, all the wise guys, all the smart ones, all, all the magicians standing around saying, I I don't know. I got nothing. You got anything? I got nothing. And they all kind of got their hands in their pockets, unable to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And it sets the stage for us to see how God aims to use Joseph particularly. So look at verses 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, remember the cupbearer? What was the last thing Joseph said to the cupbearer? Just don't forget about me, man. This... Egyptian prison, not so great. I'm a Hebrew. I'm not even supposed to be in here. This is unfair. Don't forget about me. And this lovely, nice cupbearer, two years later, after two whole years, in fact, is what it says at the beginning of the chapter, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. So they're all sitting around, Pharaoh saying, I got this dream. Someone tell me what's going on. They're all saying, I don't know. You got anything? I got nothing. And the cupbearer says, you know, today I remember my offenses from from when I offended you, Pharaoh, and something happened. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, Giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the cupbearer and the baker was hanged. So it's nice of the cupbearer to remember Joseph two whole years later. But consider though that if God didn't have His plan in this, it's likely Joseph would have been altogether forgotten. So while it's easy to throw rocks at the uh, the uh, cupbearer. Just remember that this is all according to God's plan. And uh, Joseph probably still has some animosity towards the cupbearer. But look at verse 14. So he's saying, I remember this guy in in prison. And now we're going to see what Pharaoh says in the cupbearer's response to Joseph, who he remembers from two years previous. Verse 14 through 16. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it is said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, sometimes when we read these old uh, Bible stories from the Old Testament, they, they can become character studies, and we kind of you kind of become numb to the reality of the scenarios and the situations. This is crazy. This is a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison. Two years ago, he interpreted a dream for this cupbearer, and now he's being brought out of the pit, get cleaned up, shave yourself. Apparently, Joseph stinks, and he needs to shave and shower, and he's brought into the Pharaoh. And just consider at this moment what Joseph must have been thinking. What are some things that would go through your mind if you're brought out of the pit, you get to shave and shower and clean up, and uh, you're about to go before the Pharaoh? What are some things that would be going through your mind? Yeah. It's been a couple of years. Yep. Yeah. I'm glad the is still alive, but I remember what happened to the baker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there must have been a little bit, okay, here's my big break. Don't screw this thing up, man. You know, you kind of the pep talk you give to yourself, like, come on, this, this needs to go well. I don't want to drop the ball on this. You can imagine him going in and walking in before him, all cleaned up, and there's the Pharaoh, and... In my mind, I picture him looking over and seeing the cupbearer and thinking, I got an interpretation for you. I'm going to punch you in the nose before I leave here. Um, But Joseph, interestingly, he stands before the most powerful man in the world. Egypt was the greatest nation of the world at the time. Therefore, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And so what we see here is Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world. And what does he do? He tells him about who? God. That's a big deal. Joseph could have done a number of things here. Joseph could have said, um, I really, he has every opportunity to make himself look good first. I mean, he has had some bad circumstances. This looks like a big break. He could have, I mean, you could just hear Pharaoh saying, I've heard what you're capable of. He goes before the most powerful man in the world, and Pharaoh looks at him and says, I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So that, like, that's where you want to be. It's like if you're on a job interview and they say, I've heard you're capable of doing everything we want you to do better than anybody in this whole kingdom can do. That's when the ball's in your court. That's when you're like, well, as a matter of fact, let's talk about that. I have some needs for me and my family. And at that point, I mean, he's really, the ball's in his court. Pharaoh says, I heard what you're capable of. And immediately Joseph responds, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, what are some implications in this moment? What are some some dynamics that we can observe here? What are some things when you see this Hebrew slave looking at Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, who generally actually thinks he's God, and he says, God will give you a favorable answer. What are some of the, the um, implications here? What are some of the things that we can observe in this pretty critical moment? Sort of reading between the lines, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the dream was designed to trouble him. So he's troubled. He's pretty desperate for information. No one else can give him the information he wants. What else? Yeah. But I don't think Thurrow really believes that there's anybody above him, mm-hmm. because if he really felt threatened by that, he would have been like, What are you talking about? There ain't nobody above me to tell me. Yeah. Yeah, there's this moment here where he's essentially looking at this little Hebrew slave and saying, I'm dependent upon what you're about to say. That's a big deal. You, Pharaoh. The be, uh, why not yeah. don't forget about me. I huh. up here. When he said don't forget about me. I was I was hoping I didn't see that because mm-hmm. you can really attribute parents, scott he's so unselfish. Yeah. You can totally rely on the Lord. Yeah. But yet. There's got to be some pride there. Yeah. The second, yeah. Guess. Yeah, I think that one of the things we'll see at the end of this is he actually he names one of his kids and there's kind of an implication that there's still, well, I guess to put it in a different light, when you see someone extremely faithful suffering well like this, I was going to title tonight still suffer well and serve well, because that's kind of what we see. We see he suffers well for a long time and he serves well. There are still ups and downs throughout that. Like on your greatest day, you still really need Jesus. And it's the same thing with Joseph. Even in his brightest, most shining moment, he still really needs a lot of grace and a lot of mercy to get through this. Here he's sitting before the Pharaoh and, and uh, he says, God will give you an answer. And he's reminding the Pharaoh, it, it may seem obvious, but he's reminding the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you're not God. First of all, he, he's, he's saying, now I'm not God either, but I'm about to go to someone who's above both of us to give you down here an answer that will be beneficial for you. And uh, you're now dependent upon God and a Hebrew servant. Yeah. No, I think what he means is I'm going to tell you exactly what God has given you this dream for, and that's what's favorable, particularly what we'll see here is what's going to happen in the next 14 years, and if you don't make a plan, you're going to be up a creek, and it's going to be bad news. Sometimes we need to uh, be told what God says simply to remind us that we are not God, nor are we above him or wiser. Now, this might seem obvious, but we might take it for granted that you come to worship and you hear what God has to say. But what are some other possibilities that people could hear when they go to worship? You're not condemning anybody in your answer anyway. Unless you say someone's Make name. It don't. It. Make it what you want it to be. Yeah. Or an opinion. An opinion, you can, you can make it hear what you want. You can hear whatever you want to hear. Sometimes the pastor will give you the right to take this, whatever you want it to be. Uh, this is my opinion. Yours might be different. What are some other things you could hear? I want to be inspired. Sometimes hired, pastors are hired just on their ability to inspire or not. Something sensational, okay? Did someone say something sensational like Brad? Brad. (laughs) (laughs) He'll love that. (laughs) What else? What are some other things you could hear from a pulpit that aren't necessarily what God has to say? Lies. Those are certainly not God-given. Yeah? 99% truth. 99% truth. Stories, emails, man-centered devotionals. If you have a church full of people who never actually hear what God says, what might happen is after you hear so many little stories or so many emails or so many opinions or so many just thoughts take it for what it's worth, kind of standoffish stuff, Or if you just go and you replace the monologue with a dialogue where you read something, just say, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And then you walk away just with what everyone thinks about it. What you might end up with is a church full of people who think that they get to call the shots, which isn't God-honoring. It's not God-centered. That's me-centered. And so one of the things I love about the response here to Pharaoh is he says, God says this. So just in hearing what God says, we're reminded that, one, God is speaking one, he has something to say and it's important. Two, it's better than what we have to say. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, it just blows out of the water. Any plan we could come up with, any idea we could come up with, any insight we could ever have. And so just by saying, what well, God says, you're reminding that person that there's a God and that he has something to say. So maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's in a situation that isn't necessarily we're standing in the worship center talking about something. And someone might have a question, and as soon as you say, God says, it changes things. Because at that point, you're saying, I don't want you to necessarily just care about my thought on the issue, because my thought is lesser than what God has to say. And it might be a business venture, it might be a finance question, it might be a scheduling issue, it might be a parenting thing. You might be having a conversation with one of your kid's teachers. And there's a question, something comes up, and then when you say, well, God says, it's different than just a man-centered opinion. And so here, it changes the dynamics of the whole conversation so that it becomes God-centered and thereby God-glorifying, which is very good. Look at verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, so Pharaoh could have just said, "Uh, no, I don't care what God has to say and just killed him but he did. Pharaoh said something, and Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to share my dream. We'll see how this goes. So Pharaoh says, y'all pay attention to the details, because this is one crazy dream. I've never had this dream. Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, he referred to the cows as attractive, seven cows, plump and attractive, <laughs> came out of the Nile and, f- and fed in the reed grass Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, the attractive ones. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly at the beginning as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Joseph's God is about to trump Pharaoh's magicians and Pharaoh's wise guys. Don't miss out on the reality that Egypt's most insightful guys leave Pharaoh wanting. Now, I'm not saying here that now Pharaoh has an appetite for godly things. But take note that the other things do not deliver. Like, the things that anyone else would say isn't enough. It still leaves him wanting. There's still room for more. So it's not that he has this appetite to hear what God has to say. But he is still left wanting. And Pharaoh is about to be, uh, and his magicians are about to be trumped by God, Joseph's God. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph now sits with Pharaoh's like on the edge of his seat, right? He just, Pharaoh kind of just spilled his guts. This is my dream. I'm freaking out. And Joseph says, this is what God's going to do. And so Pharaoh is on the edge of his seat, eager to hear what God has to say through this Hebrew slave. And again, Joseph points to God. There's no, all right, Pharaoh, you know, hold on tight. I'm about to blow your mind, man. Don't forget, I'm Joseph. I'm going to blow your mind. Joseph, going to blow your mind. Joseph, going to blow your mind. I'm good. He doesn't do that. He says, all right, God has revealed what he's about to do. It's a very sober-minded, sober response. Proverbs talks about how we get, when we give a response to someone's question, that it's really wise to weigh your answer first rather than just Bleh, and and say whatever comes to mind necessarily. Proverbs says that it's good to weigh your answer and to to give it in a sober-minded way. And here what we see is Joseph says very soberly, God has revealed what he's about to do. Look at verse 26 through 32. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. He's saying what you saw in the cows and what you saw in the ears are the same thing. The dreams are one. They're not separate. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. That's quite the interpretation. Like, that's not, I feel better, go back to prison that's This is a game changer right here. Everything in Egypt is about to change by God. So, so God has said there's going to be seven years where there's going to be a lot of abundance. And rather than just being totally over-the-top indulgent, um, uh, just so you know, there's going to be seven years after that where it's going to be absolute famine, some of the worst we've ever seen. And so those 14 years are it's going to be pretty crazy. It's a long-term thing here. God has gone to great lengths to communicate some really important specifics in this dream to an unbeliever, Pharaoh. The stage is being set, and our God does not always snap his fingers like a genie and tend to issues as we would prefer. He's going to take 14 years to set the stage for some of his greatest acts of might and justice. Now, this whole section reminds me of how narrow-minded I can be. Seriously, how narrow-minded I can be when I'm trying to observe God's movement in his kingdom. Think about all the details here. What if Egypt was Kazakhstan or Jordan or Mexico or some other place? And what if there was only one man in that whole country who knew anything about God and God's ways? We'd probably just, man, I just don't know. It just seems so out there. We, we tend to forget all the kind of movement that God can and does do. Taking a bird's eye view, let's discuss for a few minutes, what extent does God go to to affect his purposes and his plan for his kingdom? What has he done here? Think about all the things that are affected. And if that interpretation is real, which it is, we know on this side, what does that mean? What all is God actually doing Like if I was saying, I'm going to build a house, there would be a lot of details there, right? That you could say, oh, that means they're going to frame, they're going to sheetwork. He's saying, I'm going to bring seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. What does that mean he's actually doing and affecting? Humble them. Humble them. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. they are to serve the world all Let's say you're an Egyptian observer. You can be both, whatever. Let's say you're in Egypt and you're observing, and the first seven years come, and the second seven years come, what are the particulars that you're actually observing? Not just good and bad, but particulars. He was right. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah, you don't dismiss that. Doing well, yeah. Going up yep. Yeah. You're seeing that actually happen by God's hand. What else do you see? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, he he keeps his control because, let's not forget, he could just kill him and be done with it. But here we we see um, Joseph's coming in. He gives a warning about the time to come. And we see that God is doing a lot. I mean, um, it's almost like God had no part in the end being full or something like that. I want us to see the details. I really want us to climb into the story and see, man, like you were saying, the crops are doing good. The rain is abundant. This is great. Everybody's working. Everybody's got a job. We need more sowers and more plowers and more threshers. And we need all of these things to be done. Can you build a barn in a week? We need another barn in a week. And you, need to, and you guys need to do it. And there's all this movement. And then what happens? What else do you observe at the seven-year mark? Stops. And what happens? crops are dying, the rains are different. What I'm getting at is that God is going to affect the leadership, the infrastructure, the economy, the crop growth, the barn usage, the barn building, the effects of the seasons, all for the purpose of putting his glory on display by a work, by doing a work in the lives of his chosen offspring. Y'all see this? Like, I'm so narrow-minded when I think, I mean, if I go somewhere and if we preach and someone's like, hey, I didn't know that, I love Jesus, we're like, hey, success. But God might be spending 14 years completely changing an economy or a government or a political system or those who are in leadership or the infrastructure in a community or a county or a country or whatever to effect changes that he wants to see happen. So I don't want us to be narrow-minded. That He's doing so much more. We think that we can limit it to we go and we do this and we look for this and that's success. This is 14 years of this big old high followed by this huge low where everything changes. The country physically looks different. Mentally, people are in a different place. Spiritually, things are different. The whole environment has changed because of all of these things that God is affecting for His glory. And who's actually going to be affected ultimately? What's the point here? Preserving a nation. Who's still back in the Shechem Dothan area? Hanging out. Living the lie that Joseph's dead. I mean, God has a lot of details that he's tending to here. Yeah. Yeah explain the observation you can't ask a question like that and then just get a yes or no <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the grace here is the abundance mhm that he is covered in ashes yes the knee for say the is the desolation yes the yes um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And we could probably take that and go even further with it. There's so much beautiful imagery and parallelism and things here that are foreshadowing. We know that fire's coming and we know what we need. Um we know that Jesus is coming back. I mean, there there is all sorts of beautiful imagery here. And uh I think what you at this is abundance and then 14 Seven and seven. Yeah, yeah. Do you relate to what? Yeah, I think you know, said something on Sunday about experiencing. You know, you can't, you wouldn't can go to someone and ask them about something if they've never experienced it before. Yeah. I see in this big picture. Maybe it is seven. Maybe it's four. Yeah. And you're still just you're, you're as Joseph is hmm, keep you know relentlessly yeah pouring yourself into it, thinking that next year could be the year that abundance happens. Yeah. Is that kind of where you're going. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's um. There, there's a thousand places to go with this. I'm not looking at one particular destination. This is. I mean, you think of Joseph in year or day seven hundred in the he in the Egyptian prison. And what was he doing? He was running the prison. Well, it never says he lost that job or he, you know, he got demoted. Um, Where he's at, he's living in it to the full. And here what we're seeing is I'm I'm hoping that these pieces of Scripture at the very least jar our minds to the fact that God is doing way more than we ever realize. And I'm not saying just fully realize everything God's doing because you can't. We can't fully realize everything God's doing. What we can realize is that there's far more going on, and we put our hope in him and his design and his purposes, and we serve him wholeheartedly where he has us. Wherever it is, God aims, um, maybe it's in another country, maybe it's in your office. Um, God's doing work. Maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in a friendship. Whatever it is, wherever it is, God aims to fill it with his glory, and he generally aims to do so through the lives of his children and the circumstances that he ordains. Look at verse 33. through 36. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh, he's still talking to Pharaoh. Joseph's still talking to Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. I don't know if he maybe went a discerning and wise man. Uh, I don't know if he did that or not. Uh, it's likely he didn't. I probably would have. One of my least favorite things in the world is when someone comes to me and outlines a horrible particular problem with no offer or remedy or solution. They just sort of say, hey, this is really bad. Dump. And just dump it in your lap. You ever had that happen to you? It's like, oh, this is a real nightmare. Good luck with that. And they kind of leave. That's a real bummer. I don't like that at all. What I love is when the person comes and says, hey, I see this problem. And then they present Right after, almost in the same breath. They come up with a plan that's awesome. The kind of thought out plan that leaves you with this simple response of, yeah, that's good. You should do that. Like you, you don't have to even work at it. It's like, this is a really big deal. But here's my thought for the solution and the plan and the remedy and maybe movement that would be helpful. And you're just like, yes, that's great. You should do that. See, God goes further than just revealing the 14-year plan. He also shows Joseph the very practical means by which he can prepare for the harder days to come. It's not a real super uber spiritual thing to say, maybe we shouldn't eat everything and use everything. <laughs> like, um, we should probably save up and make some plans if we know that this is what's coming down the pipe. Some, some people view God as completely impractical, and he's not. I mean, he may not always line up with exactly the way You want things to go, but sometimes we view God as just completely impractical, as though He only calls us to things that are obscure and that make very little sense at first. Turn to Isaiah 28. Keep your finger in Genesis, we'll be here briefly. Isaiah 28, verse 23. Pay attention to where you might see some God giving some practical insight into common everyday occurrences. Isaiah 28 verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? You just keep plowing. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he is leveled at surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat? Uh, in rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border. We all know that. For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, people. Come on. Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. That did not go well last time he did that. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does <laughs> one crush grain for bread. No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Y'all hear that? All that stuff about the threshing and the sledging and the plowing and the sowing and the cumin and the dill and all that stuff. At the end, we get to, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. How are the plower and the sower and the thresher rightly instructed, and who's teaching them? The Lord. God. It, it, we don't dismiss God. but He has greater things to tend to. He cares about the sowing and the plowing and the threshing and the sledge and the cumin. He cares. And he has wisdom and counsel to put towards it so that you don't screw it up. Because guess what? Without God, you're going to... Mess up the cumin with the stick and the rod and all the stuff. It's not going to go well without God. Now, their insight comes from the Lord who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. My question is, is it any different for the engineer or the accountant or the administrator or the small business owner or the framer or the contractor or the musician or the teacher or the mom or the dad or the student? Is it any different? No, it's not. God wants us to know. He gives us practical insight and practical counsel so that we don't screw things up, but rather we tend to them rightly so that his glory is put on display. He cares how you do your job. Don't act like you're a Christian and you just try not to cuss at work, and that's the extent of your Christianity. He cares about the details and how you carry them out and your diligence and your follow-through and your attention to detail. If you have any practical insight that aids you in glorifying God and what he calls you to do, then that practical insight has come from God, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. God does not generally call you to a job or a task where he aims to put on display how uninformed and lacking you are. God has me in this job so everyone knows how dumb I am. Um, He may do that for a season to humble you if you need it. But he aims to be glorified. And while he can be glorified in you trusting him in your weaknesses, the point is that he is your strength in your weakness, not that you stink and your God stinks. Jesus is not a band-aid, and Jesus is not an excuse for mediocrity. There are people who will do things that are absolutely mediocre, and because they say Jesus told them to do it, you can't tell them how bad it stinks. Does that sound cold? I wrote this song, or this poem... Jesus told me to write it. That is the worst poem I've ever heard. He did not tell you to write that. That is lame. It didn't even rhyme. (laughs) Jesus told me to to start this thing, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing it because Jesus told me to do it. Well, you have no plan. There's no follow through. You're not paying any attention to the details. You're overlooking this, and you're breaking four laws. Well, I don't care. Jesus told me to do it. No, he didn't. (laughs) Jesus is not an excuse for mediocrity. Now, Not all Christians are going to be like the most brilliant people in a company. What I'm getting at is that whatever God calls you to do, he calls you to do it as an act of wholehearted worship for his glory. So, don't use Jesus as an excuse for mediocrity. Turn to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. Verse 22. This is what wisdom is. Remember, the God is excellent, wisdom, wonderful, in counsel. So when he shows us practical ways to do things, he's doing so with his wisdom. He's not just going and picking something from the wisdom tree and saying, here, this might help you. He's saying, I got something for that. And we hear more about wisdom here. This is wisdom, 822. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Wisdom. The Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, wisdom, rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So as the world went into play and as the children of men were were inhabiting the world, their wisdom stands rejoicing and informing and instructing and rejoicing. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, the way of wisdom. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates. Daily God aims to affect you with his wisdom. Waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Proverbs actually says that wisdom existed before creation. So if you think that as the world was created, and maybe in that whole scheme of things, wisdom too was created. No. It was there before creation in God. It's not a part of creation. Wisdom rejoices. God was assisted in wisdom, and God delighted in wisdom before the creation of the earth. In short, this means that if you display or retain any true wisdom, it's divine. That's a pretty cool thing. Now, I'm not saying you're part God. What if God was one of us? We're all. No. It comes from God, and it points people back to God. That's the idea. The idea is that they look at you and see God. Hey, you're doing a good job on that. That looks very wise. That, that You don't say, that's because I'm awesome. You say, that's from God. It's God's wisdom. We wouldn't know how to do any of this stuff if not for God. We couldn't cook this up. It came from the Lord. The idea is that they look at you and see God. Wisdom does not just mean that you're able to understand what everyone else cannot. True wisdom is designed to help others understand it as well. Particularly in this case... God and his ways. Look at verse 37 in Genesis 41. 37 through 41. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? That's awesome. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Imagine what Joseph's thinking right now. Like 10 minutes ago, I was in prison. 10 minutes ago. Only as regards the throne, I'll be greater than you. Makes Joseph number two in the kingdom. That's quite different from being a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison. Look at verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's taking notice of God for maybe the first time in his life, and particularly God's work in the life of this Hebrew slave Joseph. Joseph's discernment and wisdom have been an act of worship in response to God, and it points to God as well. This is quite the turn of events. If we're struggling, um, sometimes we find ourselves struggling with everything from depression to anxiety to worry because we don't believe that an event or a scenario will take a turn for the better. But Joseph's situ- situation reminds us that God's at work. He might have you there for a long time. But God's at work for his glory and for your joy. Look at verse 42. Your joy because it should be found in his glory. Look at verse 42 through 45. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Here comes Joseph. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth paneah And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, not Potiphar, Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph is second only to Pharaoh when it comes to power in the land of Egypt. These rings that he gave him, they're pretty, pretty rare. Pharaoh doesn't like give them out as party favors. It'd be like saying, okay, we have one security code for the alarm system, just one, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to all of you because I trust you. It wouldn't be a very secure facility now, would it? This ring is not something that was given out easily. There were not many of them. So when he gives it to, to uh, Joseph, that's like giving someone your signature documents were often sealed with wax or clay authenticating who approved or certified the document. This is a sign of power. This ring means power. I can say yes or I can say no. I would say God gave him the ring. Every time I read this, I can't help but think about how weird it must have been for Joseph to be bowed down to. There's a reminder here that uh, to be modest whenever it's within our control. One commentator states, If the option be given to the servants of God, nothing is safer for them than to cut off whatever they can of outward splendor. Why? Because we want to show to the world that our treasure is in heaven. If Joseph went gallivanting around for the next three years in his chariot, showing off his ring, he probably wouldn't be putting God's glory on display. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. That's a lot of abundance. Is that a double? Whatever. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, born, uh, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says, you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. It's been said that abundance is commonly the mother of idleness. What that means is like oftentimes a person gets a new high-paying job, and they'll shortly thereafter find themselves preferring to indulge in their riches rather than do their job. And the only way that the boss can get them to do the job is to threaten them by taking, to, of taking away their riches. It's like, man, he could have just said, Man! this is nicer than prison. I think I'm going to spend a few years hanging out in some palace somewhere, living it up, eating some fruit or something. Someone waving me with one of those palm branches like I see in the movies. Um, But he doesn't. Joseph's different. He gets to work and he carries it out. Even though by the time they were done, there was so much abundance it couldn't even be measured. He knew what he was called to. He was diligent in his work and he didn't flaunt the abundance. He worked hard to put God's glory on display. He has two sons, um This had to be foolish. How in the world did this happen? Mhm. the Egyptians. Mhm. Now I was just thinking of the verse where God would use the foolish things in the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. At, at the end here, he names his son saying, I've forgotten about my household. And I think there's a reminder there that sometimes, especially in a season of great busyness where there's a lot going on, we can forget that ultimately we're God's offspring and our purpose is to build his house. Instead of Joseph saying, well, I never saw us settling down in Egypt, but we've done pretty good for ourselves. Really what Joseph should have said is, how else can I be used as a vessel, a vessel for God's glory, for the good of his people, and for the spread of his fame and his glory? Rather than saying, I forget about my father's house, he should say, you know, my father's house is important. So there's some who say he's lacking clarity there. I, I would tend to agree to a point, but I will, his hard work is, is really notable, and this is where we'll close. Consider how different this would have been if Pharaoh had said, go to Joseph, and Joseph had made no plans. Consider how different that would have been. Y'all go to Joseph, Joseph's like, oh man, I've been enjoying my new job and all this, all this dough. And he didn't make any plans. The country would literally have dissolved into mutiny and revolt. And we end the chapter seeing that Joseph's great power, what happened? Was it just good for Egypt? The whole earth. So Joseph's great power in Egypt has now become great power over all of the earth. Joseph has been a great picture of someone who can suffer well and serve well. And what happens is here this Hebrew slave who was afflicted by his family is sent away, is in this prison. Lots of foreshadowing here. He's in this prison. He is drawn up out of the pit, literally and figuratively, and he is put into a place of power where now you might look at that and say, who has more power, Pharaoh or Joseph? Oh, God. Because what we see here is that he served well and he suffered well. And he put God's glory on display, and now the stage is set uh, for us to finish out Genesis when we come back on January nineteenth. He's in a, bl- a place of power where it's not just Egypt, but now all the earth is coming, and saying, uh, "We heard this Joseph guy had some some grain," and it sets the stage for us to come back January nineteenth. Put it on your schedules; it'll fly by, and uh, and reengage this text. Let's pray, Lord. We're thankful for our time tonight. I'm thankful that we get to. Uh, I'm thankful we get to end on somewhat of a high note. Um, sometimes it's kind of, you've got to end and wait four or five weeks to come back to it, and it's kind of a bummer. But here, it's, it's really incredible the way you have worked in Joseph's life. And seeing him suffer well and seeing him serve well, I'm hoping is an encouragement to us to be very mindful that you are always doing far more than we understand. We need to have a continual awareness of your presence. We need to be mindful that you're using us for your purposes. When we get caught up in the busyness of things, maybe there's a really big project. Maybe it's a seven-year project. And even in the most busy times, our our purpose is to put your glory on display. Lord, I pray that this, uh, in the upcoming days, if we're at work and someone asks us a question, there might be a more appropriate time for us to say, you know, God says this, rather than just giving our own opinion. Lord, we, we desire to be used however you would use us. I pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, I'm thankful for James, and it says that if any one of us lacks wisdom, let, him ask, let us ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. We got to see it in Joseph's life. I pray that we would seek it in our own lives, that where we lack wisdom, that you would give us wisdom for your glory, even in practical matters of how to do everything from balance our checkbook, to run a business, to set a schedule, to, to turn a ranch, whatever it might be, Lord. You give us practical wisdom in those things for your glory. Lord, I pray that our time over the holidays is not a time of laziness and indulgence. I pray that we would continue to be about the work you would have us be. I pray for sweet rest. I pray for time where we enjoy um, hanging out with our families and celebrating Jesus. Um, But I pray that we don't lose sight of what we're called to. We love you very much. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.